So this afternoon we are studying what Scripture teaches regarding the Lord's Supper, also as summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So let's now read together Lord's Day 30. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us, first, that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit, we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper, who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned, and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. So far, the reading of our confession. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, all parents want to see their children grow. They want to see them become healthy and strong. They want them to develop their talents. They want their daughters to become women. They want their sons to become men. One way parents accomplish this goal is by feeding their children well. They buy good food from the grocery store. They prepare nutritious meals for their family to eat. They make sure their children get all their vitamins and their minerals. Parents want to see their children grow. Now, God desires to see His children grow too. This does include physical growth, that He wants to see young children grow up. God does care about our physical bodies. They are His creation after all. But the main way God wants to see us grow is to grow into mature Christians. He wants us to grow to become more like Him. He desires that we grow in things like faith and holiness. This is what God wants for you. And to help us grow in these ways, the Lord Jesus has likewise prepared a meal for us. It's a meal we celebrated this morning in this church. It was the Lord's Supper. Yes, it contains physical food, 
bread and wine. But the Lord's Supper, at its heart, is a spiritual meal, a spiritual banquet. It's God's aim that through this meal, we would grow in things like faith and in holiness. So that brings us to the sermon theme this afternoon, which is as follows. Through the Lord's Supper, Christ Jesus strengthens the faith and holiness of His people. We have three points. First of all, the message of the sacrament. Secondly, the attitude of the participants. And thirdly, the duty of the church. So, Lord's Day 30 opens with the following question. What is the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? And this was a fiercely debated question during the time of the Reformation. You see some of that come out in the strong language of Lord's Day 30. Now, we might think that this sort of question is outdated, but really it isn't. And that's because at the heart of this question and answer is another question that is always relevant. And that question is this, what message does Christ send to his people through the Lord's Supper? That's what we're studying at with question and answer 80. And related to that, what does the Lord's Supper teach us about the good news of salvation? You see, these are not just irrelevant theological debates. The Lord's Supper is a visible picture of the gospel the good news of Christ. And so this is about the very heart of what it means to be saved. Our understanding of the Lord's Supper is a reflection of our understanding of the sacrifice and the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we should ask, well, what is the correct understanding of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Well, to answer that, we need to turn to Scripture. Scripture alone always forms the, the basis for our faith, our beliefs. And the Bible has a lot to say, of course, about the sacrifice of Christ. We're going to go through a few passages. First, there's Romans 3, verse 25, where it says, God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, what do those words mean? Well, it means God gave up His Son as a sacrifice that has turned aside God's wrath from us. That's what a propitiation is, a sacrifice that has turned aside God's wrath from us. The blood of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross it satisfies the justice of God against our sin. This means that as a result of Christ's sacrifice, God's righteous anger has been turned away from you who look in faith to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. It means God's wrath no longer remains over believers. So that's Romans 3. Then there's Romans 5, verses 8, 9, and 10. First, there's verse 8. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 9, we have now been justified by the blood of Christ. And then verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. What do we gain from these verses from Romans 5? 
Well, they teach us that the death of Jesus Christ has changed our status before God. We've gone from being only sinners before God to people who now, as a result of Christ's death, are justified before Him, counted righteous before Him. It's a change of status. And so Christ has forever changed our, our relationship to God through His death. We are no longer God's enemies, but our relationship to God has been restored. Christ has changed us from enemies of God to children of God. It's a permanent change of relationship. So that's Romans 5. And I'll mention one more text, and that is Hebrews 10, verse 14. And there it says, such wonderful words about the gospel of Christ, the power of Christ's sacrifice, it says, by a single offering, one offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What do we see there? We see that the benefits of Christ's death do not wear off. Hebrews 10 says, Christ's sacrifice has made us perfect forever. So that means the atonement Christ made, the payment for sins He made, is lasting. It does not fade away. And so that's what some of what Scripture teaches about the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And our understanding of the Lord's Supper must match that teaching. And that's why we confess what we do about the Lord's Supper in answer 80. The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And that's why, also, when the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless He is still offered for them daily by the priests, we say, no. That's an error. That does not match with Scripture's teaching about the saving work of Christ on the cross and the power of His sacrifice. Again, let me stress, the benefits of Christ's sacrifice do not wear off. The reality is that our faith in that one sacrifice is what needs strengthening. The sacrifice of Christ doesn't need to be continually brought forward by a priest, but our faith in that sacrifice needs constant feeding. The benefits of Christ's sacrifice last forever. We gain access to those benefits by faith, and the Lord's Supper is a means to strengthen our faith in that sacrifice. That's why the Lord's Supper and also baptism and, and the preaching have been called a means of grace. It is a tool God uses to strengthen our faith. And it's faith that joins us to Christ and the saving benefits He gained in His death, by His death. And so the bread and wine are not the salvation themselves. They are only instruments God uses to administer salvation to us by faith. Now, to understand this concept a little bit better, 
Think of a story from the Old Testament found in the book of Numbers. Israel was in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. They grumbled against God again, and so God sent snakes among them. These venomous snakes bit them, causing many to die. Now, in order to be saved from the snake bites, God did not just take away the snakes. Instead, he had Moses construct a bronze serpent to have it set up on a pole. And whenever any Israelite got bitten by a serpent, they looked up at that bronze serpent on the pole. And when they did that, they lived and did not die. It's a clear example of salvation by faith apart from works. That's all they, all they did, looked up at that bronze serpent, and Christ says, that's how it is with my sacrifice too. Related to this, it was not that the bronze serpent in itself had any power to save them. It was just a man-made um, metal snake on a pole. Yet it was the means God used to save his people by faith. However, what error did the Israelites make regarding this bronze serpent? We read about that in 2 Kings 18, verse 4. It says there that Hezekiah broke that bronze serpent in pieces because until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. See what they, they were doing? They started worshiping the means God used to save his people rather than the God who gave them salvation. And this is a, what I say is a similar error the Roman Catholic Church has made when it comes to the Mass. According to the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, they worship the Eucharist. That's what it says in their own Catechism. They worship the Eucharist, or bread of the Mass, because they believe it is turned into the real body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so the instrument God uses to bring salvation is now viewed as a salvation itself, and people now start to worship the means of salvation rather than the Savior Himself. It's an error. We must not confuse the means God uses to bestow salvation on us with the salvation itself or the Savior Himself. Christ is in heaven. He is our Savior. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. That brings us to our second point. Now, Lord's Day 30 moves on to another question in question 81. There it asks, who are to come to the table of the Lord? Now, perhaps to some of you, this might sound out of place even. Now, isn't salvation for all people? And so, can't can't anyone come to the Lord's table? Well, the answer to this question is both yes and no. The answer is yes, anyone can come to the Lord's table, no matter what nationality they are, no matter what language they speak, skin color they have, gender they are, etc. Likewise, the answer is also yes, in the sense that it doesn't matter who you are, or what you have done, no one is beyond the reach of God's forgiving grace in Jesus Christ. And so, in these senses, anyone can come 
to the table of the Lord. However, the answer to the question, can anyone come to the Lord's table, is at the same time, no. There are certain requirements for coming. For example, a person needs to believe in Jesus Christ before he or she comes to the Lord's Supper. A person needs to acknowledge his sins if he is to come to the Lord's table. On the other hand, hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment on themselves. They are not to come. Now, this question and answer gets us into the topic of self-examination and the Lord's Supper. As it says in 1 Corinthians 11, and is echoed in our form for the celebration which we read this morning, we are to examine ourselves before celebrating the Lord's Supper. Now, it's good to dig into this a little deeper so that we examine ourselves rightly. If we don't, we could end up causing ourselves spiritual harm. Now, to understand the right attitude we should have for coming to the Lord's table, we can ask, well, what does flourishing in the Christian life look like? And what does a healthy faith look like? We can see from this Lord's Day, from the rest of the Catechism, and above all from Scripture, that a flourishing Christian life contains three main things. First, it it consists of an acknowledgement of my sin and a sorrow for my sin. As Christians, we humble ourselves before the Lord because we know we all have deeply offended a holy God by our sin. So we humble ourselves, acknowledge our transgression. Yet this is not all. There's also a second thing. A flourishing faith also includes a strong confidence in the gospel. That is, despite my sin, God has accepted me in Jesus Christ and through His saving work. Despite the fact that I have done everything to deserve God's condemnation, God has adopted me to be His child. My sins are indeed forgiven through Christ's sacrifice, and not maybe forgiven, but they are forgiven. So, a firm confidence in the gospel. The flourishing Christian life also includes a third thing. It includes a desire to change, to grow in holiness and obedience. It includes a determination to fight against the remaining sin and weakness in our lives. And so when we examine ourselves, also in connection with the Lord's Supper, this is what we are to aim for as Christians. It's what we're, yeah, what we're aiming for. The flourishing Christian life includes these three things, humility and sorrow over sin, strong confidence in the saving work of Christ, and a desire to change and live for God. So that's what we're to aim for. But on either side of this picture, there are two errors we are to guard against. Two pitfalls we are to avoid. The first error or pitfall is when someone is greatly aware of his or her sin, humbles himself or herself because of them, but has no assurance of God's forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ. 
people in this mode of thinking know their sin, they understand that they deserve God's judgment, but they do not understand, or maybe better yet, have a hard time believing that God loves them in Jesus Christ. And in this pitfall, there's a lack of confidence that Christ's saving work is for me personally. And when someone is stuck in this way of thinking, they might struggle with questions such as, oh, how can, how can I be really sure that God has forgiven my sins? Or what if my faith is only wishful thinking? Or what if I haven't really repented enough? Or what if God doesn't actually love me? You know, I've struggled with some things so long Maybe that shows I'm just not one of God's children. Things like that. And when someone is going through these sorts of struggles, then going to the table of the Lord can almost become a a dread because of the fear of eating and drinking judgment on oneself. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, that certainly describes my struggle. But if you're stuck in this mode, let me call you out of it this afternoon. This is not the right way to live as Christians. Yes, we acknowledge our sins and are aware of them, but as Lord's Day 30 says, we also trust that these are forgiven us and that our remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. You know, if you're going through that struggle, you're worried that your faith is only wishful thinking or you're unsure about God's grace and Jesus Christ to you, and here's what you should do. You should talk to a mature Christian about your struggle. By God's grace, that person can help to overcome these things. Oftentimes, someone stuck in this mode of thinking is overthinking things and ruminating on these things in a spiritually unhealthy way. Let me put it this way to someone in this mode of thinking. You are allowed to believe in the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus Christ. You are allowed to celebrate and rejoice in that forgiveness through the Lord's Supper. Think of the first people to celebrate this supper with Christ, the disciples themselves. Read through Scripture. You can tell these men, they were far from perfect, and yet they were Christ's own disciples. They were accepted by God through His Son. So there's no reason why He would not do the same for you. That's one pitfall to avoid, the pitfall of not trusting that our sins are forgiven in Christ. On the other side, there's another error to avoid, and that's the error of saying you are a Christian but embracing a hypocritical life. There are some who might be aware of their sins but do not care. There is no sorrow for sin. There is no repentance at all. Such a person might get wasted on Friday night, come to the Lord's table on Sunday morning without even a hint of remorse. Such a person might sleep around and engage in all manner of sexual morality, but then come to the Lord's table without ever confessing their sins or asking for forgiveness. That also is a grave error. To that attitude, I must say the following loud and clear. You must watch out, because the Lord is holy. Is there any fear of the Lord 
in your heart. God does not take it lightly when people trifle with His holiness. See, Jesus Christ did not die so that we can embrace a life of sin, but so that we would be set free from sin and live for Him. That brings us to the third point. Now, Lord's Day 30 ends with the following question. Are those to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession in life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? The answer is as follows. No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and His wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and His apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. Now, in our culture, so much of the focus is on the self. We're, we are a highly individualistic culture. And this sort of thinking has crept into the North American uh, Christianity, the thinking that the Christian life is all about me and my personal relationship with Jesus. But Scripture won't let us go there either. The church is the body of Christ and the body of believers. Yes, we are individual members of it, but the members together form a body. And what one individual member does affects the rest of the body. And this also comes to bear on the question about admitting people to the Lord's Supper. Now, understand, in question and answer 82, it's dealing with the situation of known sin in the congregation. If the church, and specifically the elders of the church, allow a person who is blatantly living in sin to partake of the Lord's Supper, they share in the sin of that person. They share in it. That's because they're sending the message to that person that what they're doing is okay. And this brings the displeasure of Christ upon the whole church. You can see how this is played out in our reading from 1 Corinthians 5. In the opening verses, Paul rebukes the Corinthian church because they are tolerating a blatant and open sin among them. He writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Right? This open sin and failure, failure to do anything about it brought the displeasure of the Apostle Paul. And you can be absolutely sure it brought the displeasure of God and of Christ Jesus, the head of the church. Now, what would happen if the church in this situation just continued to let this go? What if the church allowed this person living in open sin to attend the Lord's Supper? Well, we see from this passage here that three terrible things would happen. The first thing that would happen is that God's name would be blasphemed. They were tolerating sins not even accepted or tolerated by the pagans. If unbelievers saw this man living this way and found out he was a Christian, they would think that Christ Jesus promotes sin, or that Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites, or that Christianity promotes a wicked lifestyle. The name of our Savior Jesus Christ 
would then be dragged through the mud because of open sin in the church. The second thing that would happen if, this, if nothing was done about the situation is that sin would spread to other Christians. In verses 6 to 8, Paul uses, uses the metaphor of leaven or yeast as an image of sin. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? That is to say, don't you know that if you just let sin go and don't do anything about it, then the rest of the church will start to think that this sin is no big deal? And they'll probably start doing it too? That's how it often goes with sin. If it's not dealt with, it will spread to infect others. That's what he says here in 1 Corinthians 5. The third thing that would happen is that the person embracing a life of sin would not be saved. Look at what the Spirit writes through Paul in verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my Spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Right? It's clear in this situation that the man's sinful nature is in control of him. He's not repenting. He's not looking to Christ in faith. So he will experience everlasting punishment if he does not turn. And so for all these reasons, people who by their confession in life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly must not be admitted to the Lord's Supper. As Lord's Day 30 puts it, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. And this teaching, again, that this is our duty as a church, comes to us from 1 Corinthians 5. Look at what the Spirit through Paul teaches the Corinthians and us to do. He says in verse 2, regarding the person embracing this sinful sexual lifestyle, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Most certainly, that means not allowing this person to attend the Lord's Supper. And again, in verses 11 to 12, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Instead, you are to purge the evil person from among you. So again, Yes, it must be stressed. This is not a pleasant duty of the church. We see here from God's Word, it's a necessary one. And above all, it is to be done in love. It's to be done in love for the Lord, whose name we want to honor and see honored in the world. It's in love for this person who's embracing sin, the goal is always to bring the sinner back, lead him to repentance and faith. The manner this is done is out of great concern for this person so that he might be saved. This is the desire of us as Christians. And the desire is that the church would grow in holiness and faith so that all might reach final salvation. Amen.